The girls he met at the University of Rochester were definitely interested. Christopher Porco was cute enough, a Sigma Phi Epsilon boy attending a decent university who was lots of fun and wealthy. He made no secret of the fact that he'd inherited a ton of money from his grandmother when she died, and he intended to spend every penny of it on fun. He even paid for his cool, yellow, 2004 Jeep with his own cash. Impressive. But what they didn't know was that Chris was a failing student who had used forgery to obtain loans, stolen from the people who loved him the most, and was at odds with his parents over all of his lies, deceptions, and his privileged attitude. He didn't have an inheritance. In fact, he didn't have any money. What he did have was a sordid past, and his future wasn't about to get any better. In fact, tonight, he was cementing the deal. He was making that long drive home to murder his parents. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. (laughs) Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And this is the case of Chris Porco. He killed his father, Peter Porco, and tried to kill his mother, Joan Porco. If you enjoy our show, please like and follow us, and tell two of your friends about us. All three parts of this episode are brought to you thanks to our YouTube friend, Bimbo with an Uzi, who requested it. Uzi, this story was quite the ride to research. Thanks for the request. <laughs> Joan Balsano grew up in Gloversville, New York. Gloversville was, once upon a time, the place known to be America's glove-making city. Ninety percent of all gloves sold in America had been made there. Well, that name is a little on the nose. I love it. (laughs) I know. They're pretty literal, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Joan's father predictably operated a glove business. (laughs) Well, this is almost like a storybook, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. I hope there's a happily ever after, but I'm doubting it. Not on this podcast. Sadly. (laughs) Gloversville was once a hoppin' place. It even has an original Carnegie library. You know, Andrew Carnegie? He commissioned a bunch of libraries to be built. That's cool. Mm -hmm. That library lends both beauty and culture to the city of Gloversville. We'll leave a photo of it at Parasite.org. Cool. Joan's natal family was extremely close and loving. But her parents died while she was in her early 20s. I wonder if that had anything to do with all the exposure to the chemicals they were using to tan and dye the hides to make gloves. Most likely. The reason Gloversville had become the glove-making capital was due to its proximity to a large hemlock forest. They were using the bark of the hemlock trees in the tanning process. And I'm betting a lot of parents died young. Well, I didn't know that. They used hemlock to make gloves. Mm -hmm, They do, or did. Interesting. Joan was a pretty brunette with delicate features and a love for helping kids. She decided to attend the University of Albany to become a speech pathologist. It was there in 1972 
that she met Peter Porco. She was a couple of years older than him, but that didn't matter to her. She really liked this dark-haired, positive, kind-hearted man. Who he was was just as attractive as how he looked. They fell completely in love and decided to get engaged. The happy couple traveled to Brooklyn to Peter's great-uncle Frank's to pick up her engagement ring. Peter's uncle was a great big bear of a man who wore a lot of jewelry which would catch people's notice. And then, if he was sitting, they might notice the revolver strapped to his ankle. Sounds a little scary. Mm-hmm. Joan had heard rumors about Uncle Frank being tied up in the Bonanno family's business. The Bonanno family is um, one of the mafia families in New York. Oh. But this was when Joan realized the entirety of her situation. Frank Porco, also known as Big Frank, was indeed a capo in the Bonanno family. Oh. Is capo... What does that mean? Is that like a... Captain. Oh, okay. He was also a decorated fireman. He was rough, but he had a good heart and some very interesting stories. He never meant any harm to his own close-knit family. He'd do them favors, like this engagement ring thing. The family secret out of the closet, Joan had to decide if she was all in. <laughs> that could give you some pause. A great pause. But she was. A breath short of two years from meeting Peter, this couple married in a large ceremony. Frank even attended their wedding. Hmm, so maybe this is a good place to talk about Uncle Frankie in relation to the murder? Sure. So, New York City's organized crime syndicate is rooted in 19th century practices from Sicily, Italy. New York has five families who run the syndicate, the Gambino, Bonanno, Lucchese, Genovese, and Colombo families. They're an important segment of the nationwide network of organized crime. The nationwide alliance is referred to as La Cosa Nostra, which means our thing or our affair. Mm -hmm. And it's commonly called the mafia. So you can imagine the men saying, oh, we need to go into the alley and talk about our thing. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So I always thought Cosa Nostra would mean something much more important than our thing. I mean, it makes sense, though, if you need to tell your wife, oh, this is none of your affairs. (laughs) Yeah. This is our affair. Right, exactly. So anyway, they have a long and violent history, and the Bonanno family is the only one of the five families that has retained its original name. The other families have altered their names as their power structures underwent change, so as when people died or were murdered. Mm -hmm. Members of the Porco family have a fairly strong history of working for the Bonanno family. For example, in March of 1930... There was a Frank Porco who was convicted of being part of a Harlem narcotics ring. Now, fast forward to 2002, when Frank Porco, a retired, tough-talking Brooklyn firefighter, is a capo for the Bonanno family. Okay, and he retired from... Firefighting. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he was a decorated firefighter who retired after 20 years. Anyway, he was swept up in a sting along with nearly a dozen other mobsters. They had him on extortion, illegal gambling, and loan sharking. The police wanted him to turn state's evidence. They didn't want the little guys. Not that a capo is a little guy, but Mm -hmm. it's relatively a little guy. 
they were going after the big guys. The people they hoped to charge with racketeering and conspiracy to commit murder. Big Frank, like I said, was a capo. He had the knowledge the police needed to potentially leverage themselves into the bigger picture. Mm. But Frank wouldn't play with the feds. He was no songbird. So the feds did the only thing they could when he refused to talk. They tossed him into prison for two years, starting in 2003. So remember, he wasn't one to talk, and he was not in prison for murder. Okay, those will be important later. That's right. But back to Peter and Joan. Okay. So the newlyweds didn't have any children anytime soon. Peter went to law school, and after several years of working for a variety of prestigious organizations and law firms, he became a law clerk for the presiding justice of the appellate division, Anthony Cardona. Oh, well, that's very impressive. Yeah, I think so, too. Joan attained her dream of becoming a children's speech pathologist in a local school. With their careers firmly in place, they decided they wanted to have a baby. In 1981, they had a son, Jonathan David Porco. And he gave them so much joy, they decided to do it again. And that's when Christopher Stephen Porco was born. On July 9th, 1983. Okay. So they've got their lives all set up now. They do. Great careers, great kids, nice home. Mm-hmm. The Porco family had a busy life with both parents working, but these parents had their priorities straight. Peter could have built a large law practice of his own or continued on in the career he had, but he was content to practice the law in a career that left room for his family. He had found a way to make good money while still having time for his children. Okay, so it was more of a 9-to-5 job. Yeah, it is more of a 9-to-5 job. I'm sure that there's overtime on occasion, but not like that which is usually demanded of the associates in a law firm. As a public school employee, Joan was able to take time off whenever the boys needed her. These parents adored their children. Jonathan was one of those kids who worked hard to please his parents. He was a good kid and was maturing into a good adult. He and his parents did have their troubles. John didn't like going to church. They were Catholics, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to do things his own way. Nothing big, just kind of normal kid stuff. But there was fairly high conflict during his high school years. Everything seemed to settle down, though, when he went off for his own college and career. That makes sense. That's what kind of usually happens. Yeah, I think that's fairly typical. But Chris, Chris seemed to be choosing a different path. Despite his strong Catholic upbringing, his mom attended Mass every single day, he left a string of lies, failures, trouble, and thefts in the wake of his childhood. That's too bad. I know, it is too bad. There had been some rough times in the Porco home. John and Chris were continuously beating each other up. And that was of deep concern to Joan. She did not want this kind of contention in her home. She and Peter found a family therapist to help them when Chris was 10 years old. That's pretty early. It's pretty young to be going to a therapist, I agree. It did help a bit, but Chris continued to have troubles. In the ninth grade, he got busted for drinking. 
Like John, he joined the swim team in high school, and he did do pretty well. He also played soccer, but he always seemed to be in trouble for something, and he continued drinking. In his interrogation, which comes much later in this story, he claimed his parents were fairly hands-off in how they raised their kids. They didn't really get on him for the things he did that they didn't agree with, as they considered it to be his business. Hmm, kind of like Danny Petrick. Yeah. When his dad said, oh, if it happens at their friend's house, they're doing whatever and they don't have to follow my rules. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. Anyway, Chris knew his parents always had his back, no matter what. So I kind of disagree with him that his parents were totally hands-off or they wouldn't have taken him to therapy at 10 for fighting with his brother. Right, but it sounds like it had to mess up the household, maybe. Oh. The way he described it, if he did something, it they figured what stayed in Vegas and he was Vegas. Yeah. But they were always bailing him out. Yeah, I mean, and they probably were pretty typical and they didn't want trouble at school to cause problems for him getting into college and all of right. that. It's always interesting to listen to a child describe how their childhood went. Mm-hmm. Because they often say, oh, my parents like were totally hands-off, not realizing the parents were behind the scenes orchestrating and moving things around and making things easy and facilitating opportunities. Yeah. It's always interesting because they don't have most of the picture, especially when they're describing their childhood at the age of 21, when they don't really understand how parenting works enough to know. Yeah, exactly that. Anyway, Chris was smart enough, but he wasn't exactly a good student. His parents were quite pleased when he managed to get into the University of Rochester after graduating from Bethlehem High School in 2002. They were proud of him for that, but still concerned about him because he seemed to adore trouble and did not appear to feel loyalty to anyone. That is not very good. Mm Mm-mm. His dad is said to have talked of his troubles with at least one friend at work, once referring to his son as a sociopath to a fellow law clerk. Peter was very mad at that point. And this, of course, isn't a diagnosis. It's just a frustrated father, and I only mention it to let you understand the degree of frustration his dad was having with Chris. Yeah, and I think that that's a term that gets thrown around a lot, not seriously. I think so, too. And people say, oh, his dad said he was a sociopath, and they run with it. And it's kind of crazy. It's like, you can't diagnose. You're not even using the DSM. No, his dad (laughs) didn't intend to diagnose. He was just describing a problem he was having. Yeah, his frustration. Yeah. So you said that he wasn't a stellar student, but did he have a job? I know sometimes kids try to work and go to school at the same time, and their GPA drops. So I was Mm -hmm. wondering if that was it. Well, yes and no. He seemed to have a job while in high school working for a family friend who was a veterinarian, really friends. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it was a completely rigorous or time-consuming job because he was still set to be working it when he lived 233 miles away from home. Hmm. Well, maybe that means that he helped out on holidays or he worked there in the summer? Maybe. But I get the feeling that work wasn't getting in the way of his success in school at any point. That makes sense. He didn't really have to work to survive like some kids do. Exactly. So I guess the big question here is, why did the University of Rochester accept this kid as a student? I mean, it sounds like he had lackluster grades at best. I know. 
By Chris's admission, he'd only gotten into the University of Rochester because he had good SATs and he was a swimmer and the school needed swimmers. That had worked in his favor. Do they understand that high SATs and low grades mean that he's a chronic underachiever? Why would a top-tier school want an underachiever? He could swim, and his dad worked for Judge Cardona. I think both of those probably played into it. I know references can matter, but the swimming thing seems stupid. It's giving Brock Turner. (laughs) You're right. It just seems like we have this culture around boys who are athletes and wanting to give them a good future at the expense of other people because someone who was a better student really should have had that spot. Most likely. That's what I would think too, especially, you know, we don't have his grades and everything, but by all reports, he was not a good student. What was he doing in one of the top tier schools? I agree. Yeah. Anyway, despite the comfortable life his parents provided for him, Chris always wanted more. Middle-class accoutrements weren't enough. He wanted absolute wealth. And he was pretty mad that that wasn't his life. He liked spending money, and he spent a lot of time lying to people about how wealthy his family was. I mean, they were pretty well off. It just wasn't enough for him. And it appears he had a bit of a gambling problem. They got hold of his debit card records after he was arrested, and it was filled with evidence of his activities at the Turning Stone Casino, despite it being approximately an hour and a half away from both his dorm and his parents' home. If you look at a map, you'll see it's halfway in between the two. Interesting. So, I noticed that some of the reporting around him called him like a Romeo killer. Oh, that was a movie. Yeah, which I thought was interesting because there wasn't a girl involved in his motive or involved in the plot. So did the girls just really like him or something? Oh, like was he really a Romeo? Yeah. No, he wasn't. We know he had an ex-girlfriend and had been seeing a girl named Sarah for a month. But generally, he didn't seem to be a ladies' man or even very well liked by most people. Lifetime did present a fictionalized account of the murders, and I think the fiction part was calling him the Romeo murderer. In fact, he was probably more of a player. Ah, okay. Which is different than a Romeo. Mm hmm. And this supposition is pretty much supported by the comments generated from Nellie Andreva's Deadline Hollywood review of that show, The Romeo Murderer. Mm hmm. And it makes it appear as though the fictionalized part was that people actually liked Chris. (laughs) Yeah. Here are a few of the comments left in response to her review. Do you want to read some of them? Sure. I was a grade above Porco, but I definitely don't have any memories of him being a ladies' man, um, someone named Mike said. Josh said, I live in Del Mar and go to Bethlehem High School, and teachers who had him say he was insane. Stacy says, the people that live in the area know the truth about him. It's just unfortunate that others who don't know what a freak he is... And that was the end. (laughs) (laughs) And then Matt Agudo said, the only things I remembered about him were that he played soccer, and back in middle school he got in a fight with one of my friends, and subsequently got his face smashed on a water fountain. Porco wasn't popular as far as I remember. So do you see why I say really not well-liked? Yeah. um, Look at this one. 
Leah Blodgett said, Romeo, he was not. I grew up in the small town of Del Mar, New York, and the guy was a clown. <laughs> and Carmi said, character witnesses were not going to win this case for the defense. So my guess is not much of a Romeo. No, it seems like he just kind of acted like a fool most of the time. Mm-hmm. Picked fights he couldn't win. Told lies everyone knew were lies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he apparently decided that staging break-ins at his parents' home would help subsidize his asset base. On November 28, 2002, on the evening of Thanksgiving, the living room window had been opened and the screen had been cut away to allow entrance. A Mac laptop and a Dell laptop had been stolen. The police had been called and the responding officer, Officer Bodish, had investigated the crime scene and noted there were no footprints leading to or from the window with the slash screen. And that was on a day where there was freshly fallen snow. Okay, so obviously someone had been in the house, slashed the screen, and Mm -hmm. gone out one of the doors. Right. But no one had been caught, mostly because the Porcos were pretty sure who had done the deed, even though they weren't naming names and never would. And then in June of 2003, so this is really not that much later. About six months. Mm Mm-hmm. The veterinarian hospital for whom Chris had worked from high school on was also burglarized. Their alarm had been deactivated and a number of electronics, including the owner's cell phone, had been stolen. Many people suspected Chris had committed this crime. It would make sense given that he would have the code. Mm -hmm. But no one said anything and Chris kept working there. Or supposedly kept working there because he was already in college, remember? Mm Mm-hmm. Then, on July 21, 2003, while Chris was living at home, it happened again. Joan's laptop had been stolen during this break-in, along with some other electronics. Bob and Joan wouldn't point fingers at anyone, but they were tired of the robberies, so they installed a home security system, dutifully giving the deactivation code to both boys, a neighbor, and Joan's brother. No one else. Okay, so where does Joan's brother live? Joan's brother lives in Rochester, which is right by the university. Okay. So clearly Chris was a bit shady. A lot shady. And stolen electronics were known to show up at eBay auctions under Chris's account. A lot of people seemed to have Chris's number, but no one was willing to call him out. That's so interesting, isn't it? Well, what parents often forget is... Children need consequences unless they want a problem to grow. That's true. And sometimes you have to let your kids take a small consequence so they don't get a bigger one later. That's right, because it just seems to keep escalating. September of 2004, John called Chris from the Naval Academy, wanting to know what the heck he was doing. Jonathan's eBay account had been frozen, and when he inquired as to why, he was informed that he shared the same Delmar address as another customer who had been found to be defrauding customers 
Chris had been selling items on eBay, collecting the money, and then failing to send the customers their items. So any of you who are selling on eBay, you can thank people like Chris for the policy they have of not sending you the money until the item has been reported to be received. Yeah, that is an annoying policy. But you can see why they had it when you see what happens here. Mm-hmm. Because Jonathan knew they were accusing Chris of fraud, and he was furious. But it wasn't until after the murder that he learned that Chris had been contacting the jilted customers, faking like he was Jonathan. Fake John would tell the customer his brother Chris had suddenly died and was unable to send their paid-for item. Someone reported this scam, and eBay dumped them both. Oh, that would be so annoying. Mm-hmm. And his brother didn't know anything except fraud has been committed. Mm. Which didn't seem to surprise him. Mm-mm. And Chris's mom and dad always said Chris was a good boy, and they always buffered for him. They apparently would say anything he wanted them to say, which is probably pretty typical of parents to one degree or another. They usually want what's best for their child, and buffering is fair, although kids do need to learn to take responsibility for the things they do, like we were just saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can see why so many parents feel like life for kids anymore is very high risk and they don't want to destroy their child's chances to have a nice life. So I think they buffer more than ever. Yeah, and his parents were no different. They just seemed to cover for him more than most parents typically would. Well, it sounds like they started going to some extremes. With a boy like Chris, they'd have to. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't want your child to be convicted of breaking and entering or robbery or whatever at this age. But call him on it. Yeah, I wonder if they did in private. It doesn't seem like that happened because it happened again. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, the Porco's commitment to their son extended to academic success. They were very committed to Chris succeeding at university. But Chris wasn't committed to school. He was committed to fun. His parents and the school seemed to team up against him as they tried to make him at least try to succeed in school. Like I said, Chris was a student at the University of Rochester, and, like his brother before him, he was a member of the ROTC program. Well, not really, not anymore. There had been some kind of kerfuffle about him setting a couch on fire the last night of school before winter break. According to Chris, and keep in mind that Chris always deeply minimizes his culpability in his wrongdoings, he and a couple of his friends were hanging out one night, but definitely not drinking, and allegedly saw this couch outside the window just sitting on a hill. It was begging for a little fun, so they had a little fun. Some of them, but of course not him, climbed out the window, poured a bunch of booze on it, and set it on fire. But the couch was on campus, and shenanigans like that were frowned upon. Note that because Chris is relaying this tale, the couch got itself outside, and his friends, not him, set it on fire, and no one was drinking. But they had a bunch of booze on hand. Right. So Chris caught wind that ROTC had found this behavior unbecoming and they would most likely be holding a disciplinary hearing. They could kick him out. Oh. And they wouldn't get that chance. Why? 
he walked away, thinking that would keep his misdeed off the records. At least his parents wouldn't hear about it this way. That was that with ROTC. But isn't one of the points of ROTC that you could get a good scholarship to help you pay for school? ROTC can help build discipline and character, and it can prepare you to enter the armed services. And there are scholarships available, yes. That's how John had gotten through school relatively debt-free. But that wasn't going to work for Chris. It didn't matter that he walked away, because the hearing was still held and put on his record. And he wouldn't be in school much longer anyway. Chris actually filled out of school and was suspended after the fall of 2003. But he insisted it wasn't his fault. He told his parents a professor had lost his final exam, and that was why he was expelled. That doesn't make sense. It takes hard work to get kicked out of college for poor performance. Kids get warnings and offers of help before they are finally suspended. And then they get that second chance. If they can figure it out, the school will take them back. That's very true. I checked into the probation and suspension policy for the University of Rochester, and it's pretty much the standard process that most universities follow. If you have a semester wherein you have failed to make academic progress, which typically means you earned less than a 2.0 GPA, you're placed on academic warning. At the end of the next semester, if you still fail to make progress, you're placed on academic probation. That's invisible to other students, but it's a serious warning regarding your place at the university. You have two semesters to pull yourself right. It's only at the end of your fourth semester of failing that you're asked to leave. That's when you're considered to have failed out or be suspended. Okay, so a year and a semester after you have continuously failed, you're out? Mm-hmm. And during that year and a half, the university offers the failing student additional resources. They're required to fill out a questionnaire focused on identifying what went wrong. They're assigned an academic success advisor, and they have to meet with them on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And the advisor gives them the opportunity to create an academic plan to help them find that path to success. The school is willing to give students a couple of chances, and lots of kids who stumble during their first couple of years at university pull it around and successfully graduate without ever getting suspended. But even after you're suspended, you aren't completely out. The university recommends you take this time to figure your stuff out, and you can request readmission after two semesters of separation. If the university can see that you've worked toward making progress, you can be readmitted. But you can only be readmitted twice. After that, you're out for good. So they suggest you don't squander your second chances. Well, I think it's a good thing that colleges and universities give kids a second chance. It is. But not all kids get that second chance. The first couple of semesters after their return to college are not covered by grants and loans because of their failure to show academic progress. So for some kids, this is the end of the line. They can't afford to pay tuition. College is more high stakes now that tuition is a small fortune. It's true. Chris counted on relationships grounded in second chances. He enrolled at Hudson Valley Community College for spring semester of 2004. Success here would be his golden ticket back to the University of Rochester. 
In March of 2004, Chris was visiting England on his parents' dime, doing some sort of study abroad. Mm -hmm. He got an email from them via his mom's email account titled, Failing Grades, You Did It Again. His parents scolded him for failing his classes at Hudson Valley Community College. In part, it read, and this is a quote, You just left, and I can't believe my eyes as I look at your interim grade report. You know what they say, three strikes and you're out. Explain yourself. Chris let them wait. He figured they needed a little time, and he could blame being in a foreign country for not responding timely, and not talking to them meant they couldn't figure out how to bring him home early. He had a little fun in England, and then settled in to respond, writing to his father. Chris was rather surly with him, claiming the college registrar was incompetent and had screwed things up. My lowest grade that I got on anything was a B on a physics test. Don't jump to conclusions. I'm fine. That's rude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but hold on. Maybe I've been out of school for a few too many years, but I think spring semester is still happening in March. Yes, you're right there. And like I said, he was on a study abroad, so it was part of the semester curriculum. Mm-hmm. I know for sure it wasn't spring break because Hudson Community College doesn't appear to have spring breaks. But here again, it doesn't seem like anyone is taking his schooling very seriously. He fails out of college, and they send him to England as yeah. a consequence? That doesn't seem very wise. Mm -mm, it doesn't. And here again, he blames the school for making his grades look bad. And his parents seem to just shrug their shoulders. Yeah, that's very strange. We've seen this a couple of times, right? Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, Chris applied for readmission to the University of Rochester after the requisite two semesters had passed, and he was readmitted in the fall of 2004, using his transcripts from Hudson as evidence that he was finally prepared for university-level learning. Well, that's a surprise. He somehow pulled it out and got good grades in spite of everything. I guess that shows more fortitude and determination than we thought he had. Not really. He actually didn't finish that semester at Hudson. He didn't finish any semesters at Hudson. Oh. Right. It shows that Chris knew how to effectively forge transcripts. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. But unlike Chandler Halderson's parents, Chris's parents weren't buying that getting readmitted into the University of Rochester had been that simple. They knew that Chris hadn't put in any work towards succeeding in school. They knew what his grades were because they were looking at the reports. They knew all of it. Mm -hmm. And they did question him. And he insisted that the professor who lost his final exam had miraculously found it and humbly admitted the mistake and invited him back. They'd even offered to pay his tuition in the largest mea culpa ever. <laughs> so his parents settled down, happy that his tuition was covered, but still a bit confused about this crazy story. So that's the most interesting part. If they covered his tuition, maybe something did happen there. I don't think they usually pay tuition for readmits, do they? Mm -mm. Not at a school like the University of Rochester. Not at all, but his parents didn't know that the school, having been duped into taking Chris back, was most definitely not paying his tuition. Chris was. 
but his concerned parents did tell him that getting his grades up was important, that he needed to get back into ROTC. There was a two-year scholarship program, and it required good grades. He had one year to prove himself and go after that scholarship. Failure would look like him at Hudson again and living at home again. Oh, I'm sure he didn't want that. Mm-mm, not at all. So he's lying, but he's taking some responsibility here, right? If he's paying for his own schooling? Not really. Chris figured out a way to steal his tuition. Oh. Chris told his parents that he would still need to pay $2,000 in fees, but that everything else would be covered. He asked his dad if he would co-sign a $2,000 loan for those fees, and his dad was happy to do so. But what Chris did is he secretly applied for a $31,000 loan, and he forged his dad's signature as the co-signer on the loan to ensure his parents would eventually pick up the tab since he had no intention of making any payments on that loan. At about the same time, he forged his dad's signature to finance his new yellow Jeep Wrangler on a separate loan. Oh, that's really bad. I think so, too. (laughs) As far as Chris was concerned, he was back on track. He had the cool guy car, the unusual one that everyone could recognize. He was back in school. He was unstoppable. And yes, if you were wondering, he was still drinking a bit too much, and he wasn't paying his bills. And he wasn't working. On September 20th, 2004, Chris wrote to his dad in response to his dad writing to scold him about his failure to pay some debt timely. Possibly it was his very overdue American Express card. Here, read the email. Yo, Pops, I paid it last week. I'm sure there is some delay and that that's why you got a notice. I was waiting for my new credit card to come through. The payment is now set up on automatic deduction, so there shouldn't be any problems. Then he continued, If I could, could I have you and Mom's social security numbers and your New York State driver's license numbers? I need them for paperwork related to financial info for next semester. Hope you're having a good day. Love, Chris. I'm betting yours spelled wrong in that email. You're correct, which you would expect from this failing student, right? Exactly. So from there on out, Chris quit responding to his parents' emails and wouldn't pick up the phone calls at all. They figured out that he had indeed not paid his Jeep payments, and he continued not to take care of a huge speeding ticket he'd gotten in Saratoga Springs. His parents were completely frustrated with his antics and continued to write angry emails like this one from his mom, sent on November 2, 2004. Chris, have you received our emails? Your telephone is temporarily suspended, and we can't get to you with important information, and I'll just mention right here that all of the rest of this is in caps. Oh, no. (laughs) Right, so he's getting yelled at. This sucks. Call us. I don't care what time it is. Your credit rating and ours is going to suffer if you don't pay October and November car payment immediately. This very minute. You will lose your driver's license if you do not sign the form and send it back to us. Sign the form and send it back to us. That is way overdue. This is outrageous. No way to behave and be a responsible adult. 
If you get too many calls on your phone, you should change your number and not give it out to everyone you meet. What's going on? Call, mom. So he was ducking their calls by turning off his phone? Or was his phone turned off by the phone company because he hadn't paid his phone bills? Or was he saying he was turning it off because he was charged by the call and getting too many calls? I'm not sure. I'm not sure which of those were happening. I'm not sure if they were metering phone usage back in 2004. Not usually, though. Mm-hmm. But the way he's running around trying to scare up some funding says unpaid bill, maybe? Mm. Or just completely ignoring his parents. Yeah, that is also part of his MO. Mm-hmm. Anyway, forging his dad's signature to loans would be his undoing. The bank contacted Peter regarding payment on the forged loan in early November. Remember, Chris was still up at school. This seemed to be the last straw for his dad. Peter was furious, and he didn't even know about the $17,000 loans Chris had secured that summer for his Jeep. Peter tried to call Chris several times. No answer. He made Joan call Chris. She really just wanted to stay out of it, but Peter insisted. No answer. Peter finally gave up calling and sent Chris an email on November 4th, writing, Chris, a letter arrived yesterday from Citibank indicating that my $31,000 loan had been approved and the first disbursement was going to be today. I did not authorize my credit on a $31,000 loan. I authorized only a $2,000 commitment. I don't care if your position is that you're only going to use $2,000. The loan amount affects my credit rating. You're making it impossible for me to finance another car. If I was going to be on the hook for $31,000, I would have borrowed through the federal government. Moreover, I have never been permitted to review or approve any loan documents. I am an attorney. I don't approve things without review. I have not even signed a loan instrument. Did you forge my signature as a co-signer? What the hell are you doing? You should have called me to discuss it. As a consequence, I cannot permit this current loan to go through with me being liable on it. I'm calling Citibank this morning to find out what you have done, and I'm going to tell them I'm not to be on it as a co-signer. As far as the letter to the court, I have not received it. When did you send it? Send another original if it was days ago. If you don't take timely action, you can drive down to Saratoga and handle it yourself or risk a criminal conviction for driving on a suspended license. Dad. So what was Saratoga about? Well, his dad was going to pay a $100 fine to Saratoga Springs to get him out of a speeding ticket he'd gotten. But Chris had been blowing off the part he needed to do to make this happen. It didn't matter. Chris knew that avoiding his parents meant they'd have time to cool down and maybe even get used to the idea that he'd taken out a few loans. You know, time heals all wounds. <laughs> so Chris hung out with his friends and did his Chris thing and waited for his parents to chill. He knew how this worked. His mom would start to worry about his future and if there were some mitigating issues that may have forced him to act this way and then she would talk his dad down. They'd get there. But they didn't. Ooh. He got another howler of an email from his dad the next day on November 5th. The bank had informed Peter of the first loan, the one for $17,000 that he took out the summer prior for his new 
Jeep? Well, sort of. There's an email from his dad that said, I found out yesterday that you obligated me to that car loan by signing my name to the check used to purchase the Jeep. I got the paperwork from Citibank and confirmed it with a check on my credit history. His dad was beyond livid. Can you imagine? I would be so mad. Mm-hmm. However, as a consequence, he paid the October and November car payments that Chris hadn't paid to protect his own credit history. So Chris knew how this worked. Yeah, his dad was just going to continue to take care of it because he didn't want his own credit to be harmed. Right. And he thought that was perfect. His dad had stepped up like Chris knew he would. Chris could tell they were weakening a bit because Peter also wrote, You should come home so we can talk. I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I will be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim liability. And that applies to the Citibank College loan if you attempt to reactivate it or use my credit to obtain any other loans. What kind of fool did they take him for? He was not going to go home so they could talk. <laughs> but the good news was they hadn't ratted him out and they hadn't pressed any charges. To cancel the loan, his dad would have to swear out an affidavit that his signature had been forged. The loan would be called, charges would be filed, and there'd be deep doo-doo for Chris to pay. <laughs> Instead, his dad had basically agreed ipso facto to shoulder the debt and stay quiet about the forgery. You don't really have to ask dad to loan you money. That way, dad's in charge. You just forge dad's name, use the money, and when he figures it out, you're only asking for forgiveness. Much simpler. It's pretty diabolical. It is. This kid is quite the trip. Mm-hmm. His dad had told him it would be a good idea to come home that weekend to resolve these snowballing issues. Then his dad added this. We may be disappointed with you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. Okay, that was definitely from his mom, and she was definitely getting in dad's head. Mm-hmm. This mess should resolve itself with time. But Chris was wrong this time. His mom sent him another email seven days before they were attacked, and this one said, Dad and I are very upset about you not communicating with us. We don't know if you are well or mentally stable. Dad is about to have a nervous breakdown. Do you understand that you are not behaving responsibly? Chris mentioned these problems to his girlfriend Sarah, telling her that he'd gotten into an argument with his parents about money and school grades, and that if he didn't pull up his grades, he'd have to transfer to a state university. Those are Sarah's words. But the interesting part of it all was that he wasn't speaking to his parents at all. He was still stonewalling them. They hadn't heard from him in weeks. His dad had a hold of this lone stuff like a dog with an old bone, and he was not letting up. He sent Chris another email telling him he needed to come home for the weekend to clear the air. Busted. <laughs> Chris started making plans to make it all go away. He even told a friend or two that he would soon be inheriting quite a bit of money, probably a million or two dollars, and he had a prospectus drawn up on how to invest $1.5 million in an annuity. It isn't clear if this prospectus was just a flex with his friends to whom he'd lied about inheriting $2.8 million from his dead grandmother. But grandma wasn't even dead. No. Or if he was preparing for an eventuality. 
Either way, his parents had always assured his brother and him that when they were gone, the boys would be flush. And he was ready for that. On the night of November 14, 2004, Peter and Joan Porco spent an unremarkable evening at home. They were ten days away from Thanksgiving, which we all know means they could feel the pressure cooker of Christmas bubbling up. The holidays were going to be rough this year, but maybe they could get Chris set right during the holidays. Jonathan was doing very well. He joined the Navy and was attending operations school in South Carolina. They were hoping to get a chance to catch up with their boys over the holidays. I'm sure Peter and Joan did what they always did before bedtime that night. This was not a remarkable evening to them as they locked the doors, let Barrister out to go potty one more time. Isn't Peter the Barrister? Well, Peter is a Barrister, but Barrister is the dog. Oh, good. (laughs) That's a better person to let go outside. (laughs) Yes. They set the alarm at 9.54 p.m., brushed their teeth, and prepared for bed. I'm not sure what their routine looked like, but I hope they snuggled one last time, and I hope they were the couple who said I love you before they drifted off to sleep, because they would never have that chance again. Unbeknownst to them, a yellow Jeep Wrangler was driving through the night headed their way. Music blaring, confidence high, Chris was going home. Armed with all of the physical items he'd need to avoid becoming an evidence magnet and his knowledge and training from his time working at the veterinarian's hospital where he had cleaned up animal surgeries, Mm -hmm. he had a plan that was going to take care of all of his problems. No one was ever going to catch him out again. And that's all for today. (laughs) That was sly. Now you're going to make me wait? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, fair enough. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the meantime, we'd like to welcome our newest Patreon patron, Cater Tot Hot Dish, like Tater Tot. (laughs) Yep, she sounds tasty. (laughs) (laughs) She does, and very warm. Uh We are over the moon grateful for you and your support. And we're glad you're here. We'd also like to thank Jade Brown for our music and allthatsinteresting.com the Bethlehem Public Library, the Times Union, Cosa Nostra News, CBS News, Journal News, Forensic Files, Campus Times, Spotlight News, the Berkshire Eagle, Democrat and Chronicle, Troy Cord, Forensic Files Now, Poughkeepsie Journal, Wikipedia, Oxford Academic, Murderpedia, Just Law, Nellie and Driva's Deadline Hollywood, Medium.com, and Steve Ferenczi, the author of November Memories, Inside the Christopher Porco Case, for our source material. That November Memories book by Steve Ferenczi is an excellent read. We highly recommend it if you want to learn more about this case. Join us next week when we discuss what happens next. You'll be sorry if you miss it. This has been the Parasite Podcast, and remember, always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.